Welcome to the Top Mentors Podcast, brought to you by MentorPass. I'm your host, Kenny Hansen, and today I'm so excited to bring you a fascinating conversation with one of my favorite entrepreneurs, Allie Kriegsman. Allie is the co-founder and COO of Bulletin, a digital marketplace where retailers discover, meet, and shop the best brands on the planet. In this conversation, we covered everything from Allie's experience at Y Combinator to being named on the Forbes 30 Under 30 list and being called one of the most creative people in business by Fast Company. But we didn't just talk about the highlights. We also talked about some of Allie's struggles, her own challenges with imposter syndrome, and what it's like being a female entrepreneur in a male-dominated tech industry. Allie also gave us her honest opinion about venture capital and whether or not it's right for most businesses. And lastly, Allie got to tell us about her dream come true, becoming an author. I'm so excited to release this episode just a couple of months before her book comes out on April 6th. So stick around, listen up, and meet Allie Kriegsman. Okay, so we're rolling. Allie, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. How are you? I'm good, Kenny. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm doing very well. I'm excited to chat with you today. And the first question that I have for you, which is also the name of the podcast is, what the f- is a mentor? Oh man, I, I think first and foremost, a mentor has to be someone who is deeply invested in your success and kind of sees a little inkling of either themselves in you or, you know, it's very clear to them that you have kind of the raw materials to become someone great and do something great and become someone impactful. I think it's always best if a mentor has been through the ropes that you're trying to jump through before, whether they're a few steps ahead of you at work or they're themselves a founder, an entrepreneur who's a couple paces ahead of you and is ideally in your industry. I kind of see a mentor as someone that has a little bit of a crystal crystal ball that you don't necessarily have yourself yet. And they can really help you hone in on the skills that you need to achieve your goals. You know, in many cases, even help you envision who you want to be in a couple of years and what you do want to accomplish if you haven't figured that out yourself. And they can also help guide you through certain systems or processes or decisions that they have had to make prior so that, you know, you can kind of learn from them and sidestep any mistakes that they have made along the way and have a smoother journey yourself. That's great. Yeah, that, that certainly aligns with the way that we kind of define things. And, and I, you know, one of the things that you touched on at the end is helping you avoid mistakes. And I think that's one of the big ones is like, you don't have to go through the pain yourself. You can kind of hack that wisdom by learning from other people's mistakes instead of going through your own. So exactly. uh, that's definitely one of the things that we're, we're trying to help folks with is, is teaching them all of the mistakes that we've uh, made. So Could you tell me a bit about maybe some of the mentoring relationships that you've had? And I know when we first connected, you, you shared with me that you had a a really impactful executive coach. And so maybe talking a little bit about your experiences with your executive coach, and then also going through Y Combinator. I know that they have some amazing mentors there. So, you know, between those two roles of coach and mentor, could you share a little bit, maybe some of the challenges that they helped you overcome, some of the lessons that they taught you or any of the experiences that you had? Definitely. I think in my experience, we had a lot of people, Alana, my co-founder and I in Bulletin, had a lot of people in our network, whether it was through our advisors or strategic investors who 
could help us with the more concrete stuff. So, you know, raising our next round of funding or hiring the right candidate or finding the right recruiter or navigating certain waters that were very connected to us and our business and our industry. I think that what my executive coach did for me was help me navigate more of those like personal rocky waters. So for me, I think as a woman in tech, as a first time founder, as a non-technical founder, as a, a woman who started her company, you know, five and a half, six years ago at the ripe age of 24, I've dealt with a lot of imposter syndrome. I have dealt with a lot of second guessing myself. I deal with a lot of, you know, not seeing myself the way that I think others see me or my team sees me. And that makes it really hard to make certain decisions and have a lot of conviction as a leader. And so that would lead me to, to a lot of anxiety. I would go into like crazy spirals about certain big decisions we had coming up, the way that we were implementing certain decisions, you know, a lot of stress around company culture and how to set the right tone and how to deal with issues where people weren't living our company culture. I mean, it could be something so tiny and it would just send me into a tizzy. And a lot of that was stemming from insecurity, a lack of appreciation for everything that I had accomplished and just kind of getting in my own head. So I think that for that reason, the, the executive coach was really critical for me because she, her name was Maggie. She kind of sat hybrid between like a mentor and a therapist in a way. She had coached a lot of Silicon Valley CEOs before. Um, she's been in the industry for decades. She came highly recommended by one of our investors. And in that sense, when it came to the more concrete leadership conversations around, you know, rerouting your company culture, when you feel like it's strayed from what you want it to be, like we could have a really great conversation about that. But then when it came to why do you feel like you can't be the one setting company culture and kind of, you know, bringing down the hammer when people aren't living those values? And why do you feel so insecure about having that authority? You know, that's kind of more of a therapy conversation that's about your personal history, your childhood. And so I don't necessarily think that every mentor on your network or any executive coach or any mentor period is going to bridge those two. But I think for me, especially as a young woman that's been building a venture back business for so many years and not having tons of women that I can, you know, lean on and talk to about those more personal kind of human roadblocks to your own success. My executive coach, Maggie, was really instrumental in helping me figure all that stuff out. I think with YC, I mean, they have the best possible network when it comes to guidance and mentorship, I think on fundraising in particular. Y Combinator is an accelerator program. It's not really an incubator program. They're set up to work with companies that have some degree of product market fit, that have some degree of traction and are on a natural path toward raising a, a proper round of funding from venture institutions. So for Alana and me, we had no idea what that looked like pre-YC. We didn't know how we were supposed to talk to investors, what our pitch should look like. I mean, I have memories of doing like faux pitches in front of our whole YC cohort and YC partners just ripping it apart and laughing at us. There was one thing that we had up that was like, brands having access to physical retail. And it was like 99% and then a 1% thing in the pie chart. And they're like, this isn't a real pie chart. Like, what is this? And so I think when it comes to like really getting your feet wet with how to successfully raise funding, deciding how to finance your company, 
meeting and connecting with investors, getting their attention and getting them across the finish line. I don't, I don't know that we would have gotten to where we are now without their guidance. That's really great. And I'd love to, to talk more about the YC experience, but first I wanted to, to dive back to your experience with the executive coach. Are there particular lessons that you think you could package up or, or guidance or inspiration that you could hand off to maybe a young female founder today without going through that full coaching experience? If they were to just listen to this podcast, are there certain things that a young female founder um, should realize maybe about herself or strategies she can use to, to move forward and maybe feel more confident that you learn through that experience that you think are, are packageable to hand off through a podcast? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the first one, and I feel like this is kind of anxiety management 101, is all you can really do is wake up every day and do your best and then close the books on the day and do it all over again. And I think what a lot of people, you know, founders, whether they're male or female or however they identify, they get caught up in projecting themselves into the future and getting anxious about something that's three months away or getting anxious about not hitting a goal that's six months away. Because so much of growing a company is hitting certain growth milestones and building actual momentum. So you can get really caught up in your head about what happens if I don't reach that momentum? What happens if this pivot doesn't work? What happens, what happens, what happens? And instead of getting caught up in the what happens, just put pen to paper and make a list of the things that you think will help get you from A to Z and then chip away at those in the time that you have to work on your business. It's a more effective use of your time. and It'll just make you feel better rather than stewing in this thought of I'm not going to make it or what happens if I don't make it. I think the second thing is keeping a journal of your accomplishments. I tell a lot of women to do this. I think it's really easy to just feel like what you're doing isn't going to be good enough or feel like what the path you have ahead of you is very impossible. That's how I felt. I pivoted Bulletin from a consumer facing, you know, retail as a service business that ran retail stores in New York City to a B2B two-sided marketplace business that is fully technology driven. We don't have stores anymore. We brought in a completely new customer, this retailer customer that's using our site to shop brands and inventory for their stores. Before that pivot actually unfolding, I was like, it's impossible. It's not going to happen. And I'll never forget that my executive coach made me stand up and take a deep breath and say out loud, I've done impossible things before and I can do them again. You know, I had gotten into YC, I had built the Bulletin consumer brand to millions and millions in sales. I had successfully opened multiple profitable stores in New York. And you know what they say, if you make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. And so she just kind of helped me process and package my accomplishments in a way that made this big new mountain that I had to climb up to make Bulletin successful yet again and pull off this pivot feel like it was in line with things I had already accomplished. It wasn't this like big, scary, hairy beast. And I was a newbie and I would never figure it out. So I think that really logging those accomplishments is super important because then you can reference them and realize that you've done hard things, you've solved hard problems, and there's no reason getting yourself worked up for the next hard thing or the next problem, because you're still you, you're going to tackle them the exact same way that you did the first few times that you tackled hard problems or, or solved difficult problems. And I would say the third thing is just, she really reminded me to have perspective and just really keep track of what I was grateful for. So even if 
shit was hitting the fan or things were falling apart, if my team felt really bought in and really excited and energized, that's something that I should be grateful for because it means that we have a path forward for getting out of this messy time. Or if my family was healthy and my partner was healthy and there were not other things in my life kind of chipping away at my mind share and I could give all my mind share to my company and to this problem, that's something to be grateful for because there's a universe in which someone is sick or I'm getting kicked out of my apartment or you're getting crowded with these other issues. I think those are incredible lessons. And I wanted to actually take that and now get into a bit more detail on your journey. You mentioned the fact that you guys pivoted Bulletin. From what I've seen, starting out in retail, store one, store two, store three, I watched the whole entire journey through the Inc. series and having this big high of finding the right location, finding the right store, losing that, and then eventually getting into a new place. Could you just kind of bring that journey to life a little bit, take a trip down memory lane, and then talk about the shift into digital business? Yes. So I would like to contextualize Bulletin as part of a larger era of venture capital and venture investing, where a lot of investors were treating businesses that scaled through physical space like venture-backed software businesses. So we look at WeWork as an example. We look at The Wing as an example. We look at Neighborhood Goods and Beta and Bulletin, retail as a service companies as an example. And for us as first-time entrepreneurs going through YC and getting the validation of YC and successfully raising a $2.2 million seed round, I'm not going to say we didn't know any better, but we were part of an environment and an ecosystem where investors were financing venture-backed businesses that scaled through physical space. And I think now come 2020, especially with the pandemic, especially with the botched WeWork IPO, it's become very clear that physical space-based businesses don't scale the same way as software or digitally native businesses. And it's kind of a question mark of like, well, why, why was venture so committed to this as a, a venture backed? So we were kind of part of that era and we really believed, and we still believe, and we're solving the same problem just differently now, but we believe that there needs to be an easier way for brands to get into physical retail space. They can create an online store through Etsy or Shopify in a couple of hours, um, if not an hour. And there are so many hoops that brands typically have to go through to sell into retailers, whether it be online retailers or physical retailers. They have to join a showroom. They have to hire a wholesale rep. They have to pay for physical trade shows. And, you know, we basically went from being the retailer that was democratizing retail and giving brands this easier way to get into stores, they were our stores, to completely pivoting out of physical retail and asking, how do we get these brands into other stores and how do we stop running the stores? Because we realized at the end of 2018 that our business was venture financed, but that at scale, the unit economics broke down. You know, it wasn't going to make sense. We kind of veered off of the path that we work was on, for example. And so it was, I mean, it was a lot. We basically had to shut down three stores, lay off our part-time store staff, completely reorient and rebuild our corporate team around this wholesale marketplace that's going to connect other stores with a large network of brands. We now have over a thousand brands and 5,500 retailers on the platform. But at the end of 2018, when we kind of came to this conclusion, all of this felt impossible because everything that I just said took time, it took planning, it took a lot of thought. 
And it feels like this giant portfolio of stuff that you have to do to suddenly become a B2B like software company and a digital marketplace company. So that was really difficult for me. I mean, I, I was very stressed. I was very anxious. To your point, launching a lot of these stores was equally cumbersome and, you know, and stressful. And I think a, a large part of why we decided not to scale our stores anymore was because of that experience. You know, it's easy to say in a meeting with a venture capitalist, like, yep, we're just going to create this playbook like McDonald's does for opening chain fast food places. We're just going to do the same thing with physical retail. It doesn't actually work that way. So I think that our on the ground experience with things like losing our flagship lease and having to scramble to find a new location or, you know, our retail fixtures constantly breaking in Nolita because we had such insane foot traffic and the store was so popular. A lot of the problems that we dealt with in the store were, they required longer tail solutions, expensive solutions. And it's really nice now to run a business that is so cut and dry. Like if we have a bug on the platform, our engineers look into it, it's solved. If we need to optimize our email marketing, there's some analytics that we can run and reports that we can reference and we can solve it. So yeah, I think the transition was really difficult. There was a lot of dirty work that had to be done, but ultimately our experiences in the stores and knowing firsthand that they weren't super scalable was part of why we decided to stop scaling them rather than go down a path that we thought might cause us problems in the end. Right. And that pivot decision, um, is that something that happened quickly or is this something you're, you're kind of looking out and a year ahead, six months ahead, three months ahead, you're saying, Hey, we might need to do this. And is that something you started testing before you actually made the decision? Did you just go all in at one point? I think everyone or, or probably a lot of founders are, are constantly thinking of these other opportunities. Hey, if it doesn't work yeah. doing X, we can always try Y. What did that actual decision process, how did that go? And what was it like psychologically to understand that you had to, I think as a founder, you have to almost be a little bit insane, detached from reality yeah. where you're like, hey, this is going to work. And I know it seems like it's not going to work, but you have to have that conviction and really that belief. And then at some point in order to pivot, you have to say, okay, maybe I was just crazy and this is detached from reality and it's not right. gonna work and there's a better opportunity. What was that whole process like? So to be totally honest, I mean, we were looking at a few things at the end of 2018. One, we had a wait list of like either 3000 or 3,500 brands that were applying to sell in a bulletin store and like loved this idea of like a turnkey, more straightforward solution where they could skip over the wholesale reps and the showrooms and all of that. But because of our square footage in the stores, we could only work with 120 brands at a time. So we knew that there was a mismatch and there was more, you know, there were more brands that were eager for a solution like this or a more turnkey retail solution than we could support with our current model. So we're handicapping ourselves essentially by sticking to the stores because we were only able to help a fraction of the brands that were coming to us for a solve. The second thing is once you've raised money, you're in touch with investors, you're sending out investor updates, you're talking to existing investors, you're keeping tabs on investors or investors are keeping tabs on you. If they didn't invest in the previous round, they do bigger rounds. They only do series A rounds, you know, you have an open conversation and line of communication. I think Alana and I are very good at picking up people's vibes and reading between the lines. And a lot of the criticisms of the WeWork or venture-backed businesses that scale through physical space, I think we were starting to, 
to pick up on that, you know, a whiles before it became this massive story. So that was another thing, just kind of being realistic about like, are other people going to be bought into us scaling this physical space model, or will we be shoving something down their throat that they are, are coming to and realizing doesn't necessarily match with the way they plan on financing businesses. And I think thirdly, we wanted to build a big business. Like we love these small businesses and we realized that if scaling with physical space wasn't going to work out because of this, you know, taking the temperature on the investors and then just realizing that we could only work with 120 brands through our physical stores, that we needed a, a better solution to accomplish our goal of supporting more businesses. So we actually toyed around with a few different ideas. We, Alana and I basically spent a weekend at my apartment. I was living in this like horrible basement apartment at the time that got no light and smelled like mold. And we just kind of literally spent a full 48 hours together, like going through our different options, looking at how other companies were solving this similar problem. And we, once we decided at the end of day that Sunday, like that was it, we were all in, we didn't really have the time to languish. We didn't have the runway to languish. And so we did actually do a kind of very manual test of this. So we had a few big retail partners that we worked with on doing exactly what we do through the platform, but very manually to start. So one of them was this store called the Drake General Store. It's part of the Drake uh, Hotel in Canada. They have multiple locations and they basically used us to source inventory from about 30 of our brands for their store. And so we coordinated all of the POs, we coordinated all of the wholesale orders and we literally, our team was acting like how the platform acts now. I was saving all the invoices in Google Drive. And then we did something very similar with this pop-up museum in LA. They similarly ordered like thousands and thousands of dollars of wholesale items from our network of brands. And so by doing it manually and having that level of demand from multiple partners where they were ordering, you know, in the tens of thousands of dollars, we were like, okay, we may not be able to like meet demand super soon with the tech driven solution. There will be manual parts to this for the foreseeable future, but by doing it manually and getting the great feedback from those early retailer partners, and also just interviewing like a ton of brands and retailers all the while kind of who weren't part of those beta programs, but who were, you know, passionate about our company and, and us and what we are working on, we felt fairly confident that if we built a tech solution around this manual ordering back and forth that we were doing for stores, that it would work and we were right. So it's it, it was definitely really scary. And I would say like end of 2019, end of 2018 into end of 2019 was like the worst year of my life. Because to your point, you don't know if it's going to work. And you can get early signals, but you do have to marry those early signals with a ton of delusion. And there will definitely be instances where you launch stuff and you think you had all the right early signals and then it totally falls flat on its face. And then you have to make the decision of, okay, do we iterate and optimize and try to tinker with this and fine tune it? Or is the guts of this idea wrong and we shouldn't keep you know, iterating on this? That's a very helpful lesson. And it's good to understand the psychology behind it. Cause for me, I would always think that 
it would come through kind of like an iterative, longer thought process and testing things over a long period of time. But that's super interesting to know that it was like a 48 hour brainstorming session. Hey, what are our options? Let's look at all of them. And then, yeah, I mean, that takes a lot of courage to be able to just take that leap of faith after a couple of days of analysis. And I'd love to, to hear a bit more about your experience raising venture capital. I think I've seen potentially some thoughts from you, whether it be through Instagram or other forums, where you've talked about the state of venture capital. So could you talk a little bit about your experience raising venture capital, building a venture-backed company, and how others should potentially think about that, whether it's yeah. right for them to bootstrap or raise money, anything like that? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty open about it. <laughs> Maybe to my own detriment, we'll see. But I think a lot of my, I wouldn't even say it's criticisms of venture capital. I think it's more that people raise venture capital or have this idea of what venture capital is and how they can use it. And it's just not quite aligned with reality. I think I would totally put myself in that bucket. A lot of the thoughts I have about venture capital come from a place of me being ignorant when I was younger and I was raising for the first time with Alana and like just not really educating myself enough on how it would impact our business, what type of life and lifestyle it would sign me up for. So it's nothing inherently wrong with venture financing as a financing vehicle. It's more that I think it should be used for very specific reasons and for very specific companies. So when I was 24 and Alana and I started Bulletin, we were, you know, Everlane obsessed and Glossier obsessed and Warby Parker obsessed. And there were a lot of really great funds in New York that we had heard of. And a lot of the networking events that we would go to would talk about venture capital and venture financing. And when we were looking for funds to support Bulletin, you know, we knew about Amplify LA and the company that we worked with had done Techstars and we Googled tech stars and we knew about Y Combinator. So it just kind of gave us this impression of like, oh, there are companies you can partner with or accelerators or incubators you can join where they're just going to give you money to work on your company. And that is true. They do give you money to work on your company, whether it's to raise funds, like raise around a funding or to incubate your idea. But then it's, it's a matter of then what, right? So after you kind of start on the venture journey, in order for those investors to make their return that they've promised to their LPs, you as a company need to raise yet another round of funding in most cases. And then in order for those investors to make their returns for their LPs, you need to raise yet another. And so you constantly have to be raising funds getting new investors on your cap table, diluting yourself further and and bumping up your valuation with the hopes that you're going to sell at that valuation and everyone down the investor ladder is going to make the returns that they have promised their LPs that they would bring. So for me, I didn't know any of that. I went into YC thinking everyone here is building companies and I was 25 or 26 or something. And I didn't really think past that first step of just getting that first round of investment. So what I do through my book is, and through a lot of workshops that I give is I try to educate everyone about the then what, because I think that's where things get lost in the sauce. And I think that's where companies tend to break and fall apart. And that's where founders tend to break. I've talked to a lot of founders who can't handle the pressure of their investors calling them, you know, on Friday night at 10 PM. I, I sympathize in a lot of, or I guess empathize in a lot of ways with, you know, the female founders that have been canceled in 2020 
not for all the reasons, like there are obviously accusations there that I can't wash away and would never wash away, but certain things where you're seeing, you know, like a Steph Corey or a female founder, like come down really hard on their team for hitting certain goals and setting certain sales benchmarks. That's not happening in a vacuum. That's happening because they have investors on their cap table who in many cases may own more of their company than they do, giving directives and, and running the show from behind the scenes. And so that's kind of part of my venture journey. I'm really thankful that our board member, who isn't me and Alana, he's amazing. You know, he led our series A, he's reliable. Um, he's on our side. He's very founder friendly. He's on our team. All of the other investors that we've worked with are very supportive. A lot of them actually read my chapter on venture capital, where I'm being very candid about this. And they're like, yes, like people need to talk about this because it doesn't benefit investors either for investors to invest in these companies that don't really understand the then what and what's being pressed upon them. They end up miserable and they end up serving as a loss for the investors because they quit or they pivot. They just don't want to scale the company as big as the investors want. So it's really in everyone's best interest to be on the same page about what venture financing is, who should take it, what happens after you take that first check. And I just really advise founders to have those conversations with their investors and say, you know, what are you expecting of us? We can tell you what we want to do and the benchmarks we want to hit, you know, in the next two years, three years. And if there's, if there's a lack of alignment there, then even if it's an easy check that you could get by saying, yeah, me too. Yeah, no, we want to grow 10x too. If you actually don't, or if you don't know how, or if that just really intimidates you, um, it's worth looking into alternative forms of financing because it's an easy check in the short term, but you're setting yourself up for a lifestyle and a journey that may not be best suited for you and what you actually want. That's very helpful. And I'm excited to read the book. I'm excited to read that chapter. It's been something, I think I had a, a similar impression to you when I first got started and my understanding of building a company was that's the first thing that you do is you go out there and you raise money and then you go and build the company. It was only after getting into the, the I'd say community a little bit, learning a yeah. little bit more, I realized how backwards that kind of conception is or that idea is that that's day one is raise money, then figure out what the company is. It's like, no, there's a huge commitment that you're signing up for when you actually take on venture. And I think it's really exciting to see some alternative means of financing becoming available yeah. and and uh, yeah, I think it's just for a lot of people, they don't understand the, the details of the commitment. And there's a lot that is talked about in terms of venture as a billion dollar business and, and angels want this and, and, you know, different types of financing options want different things, but it seems like there's a lack of, yeah, just certainty around what that means. And one of the yep. frameworks that I've heard that was helpful is, you know, look at the size of the fund. And if it's a $20 million fund, then you're expected to return the fund. And, you know, all of these different things that it seems like there's just not a lot of clarity around. So I'm excited to read the book and, and learn more. And on that, I would love to hear a bit more about the book. So there's one chapter about venture capital and what is the rest of the book about? What, what's the pitch? Yeah. Starting with the title. <laughs> yeah. So it's called How to Build a Goddamn Empire, which I I love the title. I didn't come up with it. Someone at my publisher did, but I'm a huge fan. And the term empire is kind of cheeky on purpose. I really feel like 
whether you're, you have a side hustle that you're working on part-time or you've just started building your own business full-time, but it's in its early infancy, you know, that's your empire. Your empire doesn't need to be, you know, the size of like a Slack or a Zoom. You know, if you're building something on your own terms and you're kind of in charge of how it grows, how it expands, who's on that journey with you, you know, that's an empire to me. And so the reason that I wrote my book was because as an early and first time founder, I felt like the books that I had been reading or or that were available to me on entrepreneurship were kind of written from on high. They were written by women that had accomplished a ton that were already on the fortune 500 list. You know, I thought girl boss was like really excellent for its time, but Sophia Amoruso was like not a few paces ahead of me. She was like light years ahead of me in her career and the decisions that she had to make. And same thing with Sheryl Sandberg. I read that book right when I moved to New York and, you know, she is someone I hope to relate to someday, but she was just, again, light years ahead of where I was. And so I felt like there was that element. And then the other element was like, entrepreneurship and side hustles were getting very glorified. Like a lot of female founders in particular, when I started writing the book, their brands were so persona and personality driven. They were on the cover of Forbes wearing really stylish outfits on Instagram. And I felt like entrepreneurship for me was not that simple. It was not that glamorous. It was very messy. It was very emotional and it was a roller coaster and it could feel very isolating. So I felt both like the kind of image of female entrepreneurship that I was ingesting on social media and in the press was like very different than my personal experience. And then that the books that were available for female entrepreneurs were written by women that had figured a lot out already and were just very far from most of the entrepreneurs that were in the trenches. So I wanted to write a book from the trenches. I wanted to write a book that felt like a hybrid, you know, entrepreneurship diary, talking about pivoting in real time, talking about layoffs in real time, talking about a lot of these hard decisions in a way where you're on that journey with me as I'm making them and as I'm figuring out, you know, how to do this the right way. And then I also wanted it to be kind of an instruction manual for early entrepreneurs, for younger entrepreneurs, for aspiring entrepreneurs, because, you know, I have a business, I've raised funding, but I'm not Sheryl Sandberg. You know, a lot of these decisions I made just last year, just two years ago. And so that's kind of similar to the mentorship conversation we were having. Like, I want the book to read like you're hearing from a mentor that speaks in your language that you can relate to, who's funny, who's vulnerable, who's weaving personal experience into the story and not have it feel like this kind of disassociated person that I admire a lot, but that isn't really giving me tactical advice for where I'm at in my career right now. And I would say the last thing is I interviewed 30 other women that are running businesses or empires of all different stages and sizes. So you're not just hearing from me. It's not just like my diary and my instruction manual. If there's a chapter on brand building, you're hearing from me and then you're hearing from completely other different types of businesses and their founders about how they tackled the same problems or found similar solutions. If there's a story on like that magical and miserable beginning and how starting something is always really exciting, but it's often the hardest part because you're getting the least traction. You feel like you're just, you know, trudging through the mud. You're not just hearing about me and my experience. You're hearing about other founders and their experience just getting started and what baby steps they took 
you know, to really get their businesses off the ground. So yeah, I kind of wanted to create a book that spoke to a lot of people, told a lot of stories, but almost felt like this little like mentor companion that you can read when you're feeling like shit and when you're alone and you're, you don't know what to do. You can hear from me and feel a little bit less alone and feel like, okay, there's someone that's been through it too. Or if you have literal tactical things to figure out, like I want to find a co-founder, how do I do that? And you don't have a business yet. You can crack open the book and find some value and some answers there as well. That sounds great. And I'm not quite a female founder, but I'm very excited to read it. (laughs) And I would also very like defeminized. Like that's the other thing is I feel like when I first started writing the book and when I got the book deal, it was, it was part of that girl boss era. And so it's been interesting this year with my publisher and my editor to ask ourselves, you know, how do we make this more culturally appropriate for now. And so you can read it even if you're not <laughs> I have permission. That's great. I got permission yeah. from the author. So I'm in. Um, and I would love to, once it's out, and I think you have the pre-order link yeah. is out. Is that correct? Yeah. And it's on my website, or if you just Google the title, how to build a goddamn empire, Barnes and Noble has the pre-sale link up. Okay. Awesome. And I would love to do some giveaways for that. So we'll have to connect afterwards and, and figure out how we get that lined up. There was one other topic I wanted to talk to you about, and it has to do with, with your book. And it seems like you, you and bulletin have both done a very good job of interacting with the media and public relations and seeing the the ink story and, and everything like that. And and you mentioned Forbes and, and some other lists, I think that I've seen you on. So would you consider that one of the things that you guys have done well is interacting with PR and the media and any tips for other folks that are getting started? I would think that being in New York is probably helpful. There's a lot of great outlets around, but were there any kind of keys to success in, in interacting with those folks? Yeah. So I do have a chapter about press. It's called press is not success, but it does give some helpful tips. If you want to kind of be your own publicist and do your own PR, like I did, we paid for a publicist briefly in 2018 for one of our store launches for about three months. But other than that, it's been all me. I would say that I did a good job. I mean, I look at the the titles that we've secured, the fact that we were in the New York Times, making Forbes 30 under 30, both of us getting listed in 2018 to Fast Company's most creative people list. And I'm like, oh shit, like I did that. Like, that's pretty cool. I will say a few things about press. One, I, it's great that people see it as validation of me and of us and the business. I think it was really instrumental in helping me get my book deal that you could Google bulletin or Google my name and kind of find these clippings. But, you know, in a lot of cases, press is a tool. It should be used as a tool to either, you know, build more brand awareness or get more customers. And if you don't have a specific goal for the press, don't do it because you're basically just chasing, you know, vanity. And I I share stories in the book where you know, things looked really great from the outside, but on the inside, it, it was very messy. And so press is not really a marker of success. It's not really a marker of if the business is going well. Press is a strategic tool that founders and companies use to accomplish a certain goal. And if you don't have a specific goal in mind, then you're not ready to do PR. My strategy was pretty straightforward. I came from sales. I was in enterprise software sales before starting Bulletin. So you know, getting cold emails and sending cold emails um, and cold outreach was something I was very comfortable with and I know how to do it. 
I always try to remember, like with sales, I think it's very similar to sales, actually. I always try to remember that, you know, journalists are people. If they are covering a certain vertical, they want to know why is this story relevant to me and to the vertical that I cover? Why are you emailing me of all people? Why do I need to tell this story now? Like, what is the timeliness? Like, why do I need to reply back to your email and be like, yeah, let's get on a call. Why does this need to happen right away? And is there something actually interesting going on? Like, what is the angle here? So if you can personalize your cold outreach to reporters and really explain to them why you're reaching out to them, you can do that through stalking their Twitter, stalking their Instagram, stalking their LinkedIn, obviously stalking all of their previous articles. That's really important Two, you know, really nailing why you have a story. It shouldn't just be, Hey, we launched a new CBD dog treat, cover us. What is interesting about your CBD dog treat? How is it different from other CBD dog treats? Is there a larger story that it's part of like, Oh, pet CBD is on the rise. Can you tie it to a larger trend? And then I think thirdly is the why now, you know, I will never forget when I pitched Fast Company, this piece they ended up writing, it was titled like, well, feminist retailer bulletin, like change brick and mortar retail forever or something. Wasn't a huge fan of the title, but what I emailed her was other press that we had gotten. And I said, you know, a lot of people have covered bulletin from a lifestyle perspective because we've worked with Planned Parenthood because we only sell female founded businesses, but no one is really telling the, you know, B2B story here and how we're supporting brands and how we're democratizing access to physical retail for brands. And I can't help but feel like part of that's because we're women, or maybe it's because of the brand's aesthetic, but you know, you as a journalist, I think are the one to hear from us and tell this other side of the story. So I guess flattery is also a great, a great weapon, but you know, that that's, that's it. It's like, you, you need to be able to say like, what about your product or your services, your company is actually special or meaningful. Why is it relevant to that specific journalist? And why do they need to cover it right then and there? Why is it something that they need to act on now? Follow up if they don't get back to you over email, send that second follow-up and then, you know, either DM them or send them a Twitter DM, Instagram DM, connect with them on LinkedIn if you don't hear back. And then if nothing comes of it after that third, you know, step, then walk away because they're not interested. That's some great tactical advice. And, and then the last question I want to ask you is the question that we end every podcast with. And that is for you to speak to the person listening right now who may be sitting on the fence thinking about starting their first business and they're stuck in the entrepreneur phase and they may be struggling with, I'm not good enough. There's so much, maybe my idea is not good enough. There's too much competition and, and they're just stuck in that place of inaction. What would you say to that person listening right now? I would say just break everything down into baby steps and everything that you're thinking in your head or all the conclusions that you're coming to in your head, you should only be coming to if you've actually researched them and and checked them. So if you're thinking no one wants this, if you're completely pulling that out of your ass and making it up, you may want to talk to a bunch of people that could be your target customer to see if that's actually the case. And maybe their responses will surprise you. Maybe the business that you want to launch isn't, you know, maybe what what you want to launch and the feedback that they're getting are inconsistent, but maybe you'll get feedback from potential customers that will pivot you in a slightly new direction where the market isn't as saturated there. 
So I always, I mean, talking to customers, your prospective customers is my favorite thing to do. I would say like, you can't make assumptions about your product or your service or how oversaturated the market is until you talk to potential users and make sure that that's actually the case. I would otherwise just break everything down into baby steps. Like if you don't know the first thing about building a supply chain, like talk to another founder that's done it, find a founder that launched a year, two years ago, you know, message them on LinkedIn, DM them on Instagram, just say, Hey, can I get 20 minutes of your time? I really believe in the power of networking and I believe in the power of asking questions. And if you feel really overwhelmed by the things you don't know, make a list of all the things that you don't know and then figure out who you need to talk to, to find the answers. And and me and Alana still do that. Like we're in the throes of something right now that's like very new and exciting and different for us. And we have no idea what we're doing. And so, you know, there's a lot, we've, we've talked to so many people because you, you can't expect to have lived a life that you haven't lived yet, but what you can do is talk to the people that have. And I think that goes back to your entire mission of mentor pass and everything that you're doing. You know, there are people out there that want to help that can spare those 10 minutes and connecting with those people and asking questions of them is, you know, the only way that you're going to get through that list, but don't get overwhelmed by all the things you don't know, or the things that you need to figure out, just put them to paper and day by day, try to chip away at them as you can. There's no time crunch here. So, yeah. Excellent advice. Always coming back to create a list. (laughs) So ever get your, your pen and paper ready and start listing things out and start taking small action. Allie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for, for joining us on Mentor Pass. I'm super excited to be working with you and really, really happy to have you along this, this journey with us. So we'll have to follow up and we'll do the book giveaway. And beyond that, where else can people follow you, find you, learn more about the book, learn more about you, watch interesting press videos that were made about Bulletin? <laughs> Uh, yeah, if you want to watch our ink series, which makes me and Alana cringe, but I, I do find it very entertaining. You can go to my website. It's my name, AllieKriegsman.com. <laughs> AllieKriegsman.com. It, it should be in the title of this podcast. You can check out Bulletin at www.bulletin.co, not .com. And you can follow me on Instagram at AllieKriegs or just type my name into Instagram and my profile should pop up. And yeah, I look forward to connecting with all of you. I also have a newsletter that I just started. So if you go to my website and want to tune into my weekly ramblings about venture capital, brand building, all that good stuff, you know, founder stories, um, you can subscribe on my website. Thank you so much, Allie. And we will link those things in the show notes. So everyone will be able to find it very easily. It's been a pleasure talking to you, learning from you. I'm excited, like I said, to work with you and to get my hands on this book. So thank you so much. We'll talk again soon. Thanks so much for listening to the Top Mentors podcast brought to you by Mentor Pass. If you like what you heard and you want to meet great mentors to help you in your startup journey, go to mentorpass.co and apply to join.